Qualifiers can be adjectives, but adjectives are not qualifiers. That's not fair. So to say that someone is a honky white is basically saying, like, honky is the adjective. Correct. But it is not qualifying how white they are. But my argument was that it does qualify how white you are. Yeah. Because to me, to say someone is honky white is to say, like, wow, they're quite white. I mean, honky is on the whiteness chart. Right? So it does qualify how white you are. Yeah. Like, if you tell someone that you're honky white, like, you're telling you're them- You're fucking white. Right? But apparently that is not how it is viewed by everyone like, that we are friends with <laughs> that, I guess, made English their life. <laughs> That have actual English degrees. Yes. People that know more than we do. Right. So technically, we are wrong. I don't know. I think there's still a lot of people out there that are qualified to be honky white. Yeah. That's, that makes sense to me, right? Yeah. No, that work. I'm still using it. I ain't going to stop. All right. Yeah. Welcome to Rock Candy, <laughs> your weekly podcast, bringing you sweet treats from the world of music. And we are continuing our story of Mr. George Harrison, who was kind of a honky white. I mean, he wasn't like American honky white. Oh, no, he was he British was, honky he white. He was British honky white, which yeah. is a different kind of honky white. There is an umbrella <laughs> of honky, of honky <laughs> when it comes to me. I don't know. I don't want to call George Harrison honky white. He was not at yeah. all. I think he would probably take offense to that like, if he ever... I'm not honky white. <laughs> That's no fair. What does that even mean? I don't know. I don't, like I don't honky know. tonk? That's some nice music. <laughs> I think our Liverpudlian accents are getting so much better. They are, week by week, getting better and better. Yeah. And we're your hosts. I'm Maggie. I'm Ashley. Yeah. And we're we're going to have fucking peak Liverpudlian accents by the end of this. You've had your warning. Yeah. I've actually gotten to the point where I'm trying to qualify <laughs> each accent per beetle. So I'm, I'm working on my Ringo accents. It's a little deeper and a little slower. And then <laughs> a little oh, slower. Mm. Paul kind of talks like this, right? Because he's a little uptight. And he's oh, pretty Paul. uptight. And mm-hmm. he's, he's, I'm a little aloft when I talk. I'm he, a little aloft. He's working class trying to be posh. Yes. Very or much. Or is he posh trying to be working class? No. No. I, th- I feel like he probably really wants to be posh. I think, you know what? We'll get into it when we talk about Yeah, that's not Paul. for this that's week. That's not for this week. This week, we're talking about George, who... I guess George, I'm just doing more of a standard Liverpool Pudlian accent. Pretty much. He's really straightforward. He doesn't so fuck around. He don't fuck around. Unlike some of the friends he makes later. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, in that sense, nah, George fucks around. Oh, no, George fucks around, but I just don't like Eric Clapton. Fuck Eric Clapton. <laughs> Welcome to yeah. Rock Candy. We're going to make you hate Eric Clapton. Or we're going to make you hate us for hating Eric Clapton. Oh, yeah. Fair warning. If you really like Eric Clapton, like if you still get a hard on when you hear Layla on the radio. Yeah. Maybe you shouldn't listen to this. Yeah. Episode. Then I'd say you, you just should skip over this now. one way for next week. It'll yeah, be yeah. fine. Like, you know, you can turn it maybe at like the end. Yeah. And just find out what happens to George. Yeah. Yeah. Like three quarters of the way through this. Yeah. Then. If you like. If you like uh, Elton, Elton John, Jesus God Christ, damn it. every time. It's not Elton John. It's not Elton John. If you like Eric Clapton, maybe like skip, oh, I don't know, an hour and a half of this yeah. and then come back next week. <laughs> yeah. All right. Good, 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 Sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah. And uh, what, what are we drinking this week? What you got? I'm drinking Birds of Paradise by uh, King's Highway. Is it from King's Highway? Holy fuck. Did I not get a King's Highway? Oh my god, did she not get a King's I, Highway? It's not a King's Highway. I wow. thought it was. Actually, yeah, I was... Oh, I, this is Graft. 
uh, graft, which is cider. why it's still quite good. That's um, they tricked me. I thought it was King's <laughs> Highway. <laughs> it does look like a King's Highway can. It does, and normally I don't like graft, but you know what? This one's good. No, that's quite good. I like it's it a good. lot. My Moscow Mule cider, but it it just kind of tastes like a gingery little sour beer, but not. So much ginger that it hurts my throat. No. Which a no, lot no. of ginger ones do, and I don't like it. And you know, you know what's paradise? India. You know who went to India? George. George. It works. It works. It totally works. Also, this guy over here kind of looks like George, maybe. Kind of. Yeah. And then I am drinking from Springdale, another Springdale, mm. uh, Fruits and Shoots. <laughs> I just like saying it. Fruits, Fruits and, and shoots. shoots. Yeah, no, it's actually really good. It's it is a barrel aged sour you know mango. What? deliciousness springdale and jack's abbey know how to make a fucking sour they really do when i drink a sour i want it to like like scramble my brain a little bit it does and it does and i like that but it also doesn't dry you out yeah it's not like a how dry do you want it beer it's just a dry beer yeah it's not gonna be sandpaper no it's quite delicious so we have a lot to cover yeah so we might as well get balls deep Let's just go balls fucking deep in this. Yeah. And get started. So where do we leave off last time? I don't even know where I fucking left off. Uh, The Beatles. <laughs> no, Beatles mania just hit up and George is like, I don't think I want to be famous. Yeah, he's I like, I'm not sure about to this. Myself. Yeah. This is a bit much. Mm, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Anyway, I didn't really want to get into George's time in the Beatles too much. Right. Because we would be here fucking forever. Yeah. The Beatles, those few years that they were together are a whole few episodes in their own. Like, I would say that would be a four or five parter. Yeah. It's kind of ridiculous how meticulously documented their every move was. Right. It's almost like they were absurdly famous. Absurdly. <laughs> anyway. I think absurdly is the most perfect way to explain yeah. their fame. Like, absurd. Like, the levels of fame that they got when they were at the height of Beatlemania was just, why? And that wasn't even, like, their good music. Yeah. Their good was, music came after Beatlemania, That was, like, the okay music. <laughs> it's fine if you like Herman's Hermits. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I've decided we have to reference Herman's Hermits at least once in every one of these episodes. Okay. Well, we did it once, so. We got it. Check that off your list. Might do it again. So, but there are things that I have to talk about that happened during the Beatles because they are very important to George's story. And the first, of course, is Patty Boyd. Yep, Patty. George met Patty on the set of the Beatles movie A Hard Day's Night. It oh. was, yeah. I didn't realize it was that early on. Yeah, very early. Oh, shit. Okay. It was early 1964 when George was 20 or 21 and Patty was a fresh-faced 19-year-old model. Okay. She had gotten a bit part in the movie playing a schoolgirl on a train with only one line. Prisoners! (laughs) Good job, Patty. I could do it. (laughs) We got got to do the take again, Patty, like another 17 times. Sorry. (laughs) She got tired of saying prisoners. Prisoners. George was instantly smitten and asked her on a date. She declined, but when they met on set again on March 12th, she said sure. Insta-smit. Insta-smit. Yay. That should be a new dating app. Insta-smit. Sminstant. Oh, sminstant. Sminstant. I like that, too. After the first date, George and Patty were an item, keeping a relationship going despite both of their hectic schedules. 
In July of 1964, George bought Kinfawn's estate in Escher, Surrey, which is in the countryside outside of London. Only a few months later, Patty moved in. She's like, I like this place. Let's go. Let's move in together. It's mine now. <laughs> this is ours. What's Appar- yours is mine. Give it. <laughs> Apparently, um, the house that they lived in is has been torn down and another one built on top of it. Oh. But after they had been living there for a while, they painted the whole outside in like psychedelic patterns and like flowers and all these different <laughs> colors like the entire thing it just dropped acid or like you know it'd be great if we painted our house exactly <laughs> that's exactly Productive. what they did <laughs> that's a drug you want to take Kinfons was a pretty unassuming estate there was a gate out front but security was virtually non-existent the couple would leave their bedroom window open at night for their cats, Rupert and Corky. Those are the most British cat names. They're the most uptight British cats. You know Corky's got a real tight butthole. <laughs> it's got a cork in it. Mm. Ah. But that quickly stopped when they woke up one night and found two girls under their bed. Just hiding. <gasps> That's terrifying. I, nope. That's when I shit the bed. <laughs> On them. Yep. Get out. Get out. The two married on January 21st, 1966. George and Patty, not the two girls under their bed. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> yeah. they could, there was no gay marriage in 66. No. Don't, don't lie to me. Yeah. In a very low-key ceremony at the town of Epsom Registry Office. So he's the third to Beatle to get married. I guess. Because there's John, and then there's Ringo, mm-hmm. and then there's George. Yes. Okay. Paul McCartney was George's best man, and aside from a handful of family, that was it. Hmm. This was a very blissful time for George and Patty, and also for the Beatles as a group. But it wasn't going to last for anyone involved. What? Hmm. No way. The Beatles break up? (laughs) I I didn't know that. (laughs) News to me. What? The Beatles were never a group of equals. With Paul and John's raging egos, it was nearly impossible for George to have his say in anything. And George consistently found himself shoved off by the songwriting pair. Mm -hmm. His songs were routinely dismissed, despite how good they were, and his voice was barely heard on any Beatles record. It it was the (laughs) Lennon-McCartney show, and George was barely a tertiary character. He's like getting as much action as Ringo, and they would just throw things to Ringo and be like, Ringo, do you... Do you want to sing something just real quick? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to sing. Yeah. That would be nice. And that's pretty much what they did to George because they constantly rejected the songs that he wrote. But then they'd be like, oh, but do you want to sing on Norwegian Wood? Eh? He's like, but that's not my fucking song. Yeah. And then Paul would be like, but you have to sing it exactly like this in this way. But sing it like this. But don't do this. You have to do this. Yeah. It was fucking ridiculous. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Nope. That's going to be a no for me, dog. (laughs) Naturally, George was resentful, and a rift between him and the rest of the band kept getting bigger and bigger. It wasn't terrible all the time. Mm -mm. There were plenty of tender moments between the band members. It was usually during recording when the biggest blow-ups happened and resentments were developed. At the end of the day, they loved each other, looked out for each other, and had tons of great moments and hysterical laughter shared. Right. One particular bonding experience was the first time George and John had LSD. Because, <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, that's how you bond when oh, you're. Oh, I do know this story. They were at the house of their dentist, yes, John Riley, with Patty and John's wife Cynthia having a dinner party mm-hmm. because everyone has dinner parties with, <laughs> with their, their dentist. dentist. Oh, I love it. Without telling his guests. Dr. Riley laced their coffee with LSD. Mm -hmm. He tried to get them to stay and hang out, but the foursome was rightfully freaked out and went to a club instead. (laughs) I mean, because that's where you go when you're like, I don't know what the fuck's happening to me. Let's go to a club. It's hard to tell with LSD because sometimes it's better to just like sit in like a calm place and do nothing. And just kind of let things come to you. I guess when you've never had it and you don't really know what it is. Well, and yeah, it's when a new drug. Like, surprise drug. Surprise. <laughs> You're like, like I, I don't want a surprise drug. Yeah, maybe going to a club is a good place because it's just full of yeah. distractions. But like, what was the intention of this dentist? What? Like, <laughs> why? Questions. Was it just Steve Martin from, uh, <laughs> God, Little Shop of Horrors? <laughs> I'll be a dentist and I'll sneak LSD in your coffee. Oh, <laughs> I've never seen that, but I'm sure that's a funny joke. Oh, that is really funny. I think I'm funny. <laughs> Everyone else is like, that's a funny joke. <laughs> Despite what most people think, no member of the Beatles was dropping acid like crazy. George himself only did LSD a few more times, maybe. In fact, he stopped taking it after a somewhat harrowing experience in August 1967 when he, Patty, and a few friends took LSD and walked around Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. Uh, mm, no. Wrong, I mean, wrong place. I get it. It was the summer of love. That's like where you yeah. went. But yeah, they were thoroughly disgusted with what they saw at Haight-Ashbury. Yeah. After fans that were following them around the neighborhood chased them to their car, George decided psychedelics weren't his jam. That's totally legit. Yeah. Psychedelics are not an easy, like, some people love them and some people vibe with it great. And some people are like, I don't like having absolutely no control like that. It so. really depends on what your your chemical makeup is, right. I think. I totally agree. So, actually, that does kind of surprise me. I thought they all dropped LSD a lot more. John and Paul, I think, did. I think they did, but... I, I mean, don't think Ringo was too... Ringo never seemed too into the drug thing. He was just more about alcohol. Yeah. But I think after a certain point, after a few years, everyone was kind of like, yeah, we're kind of over this. This was cute. Like It's like they graduated college and they're like, yeah, I mean, like, I did a bunch of shrooms in college because I didn't give a shit. But, like, I got to work in the morning. Yeah, like, I just want to, like, smoke some weed and then go to sleep. Yeah. Like, I just... Yeah, I'm going to smoke some weed. I'm going to watch some, like... Full House and Family Matters on, you know, the ABC channel. And on TV Land. Yeah. Then I'm going to bed. It's going to be great. Yeah. This That's is exactly what, what the Beatles were doing. Yeah. These few experiences with LSD opened up his mind to a place of spiritual awakening. It is 100% fact that George was the one who brought Indian mysticism to the Beatles. Paradise. Yes. <laughs> Thankfully, it was that and not some doomsday cult, because I feel like he could have very been, very much been easily influenced by that also. Yeah. He, he could have gone so, down the Fleetwood Mac route. Yeah, he was so, like, open to to anything at that point. Or the that Beach could Boys route. Give, yeah, either one. <laughs> either There's one. There's a lot of rockers from that era who were like, cults? Cool. Yeah, and honestly, eventually he gets into the Hare Krishna um, movement mm. and that has a whole lot of culty shit well there's the... like there's this whole like retreat or shrine or something in west virginia that 
has a whole lot of culty shit going on yeah and a lot of child abuse and a lot of like children of god kind of like things oh no so i was disappointed to hear that he was connected to that movement but but he wasn't he wasn't connected to it it just was like a six degrees of kevin bacon Hari Krishna kind of thing. No, he was it, that section was the six degrees. He was into the Hari Krishna movement right, later right. on in his life, but that whole cult thing was like six degrees removed. Right. But still under the umbrella. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah. But it was actually David Crosby and Roger McGuinn of the Birds that introduced George to Ravi Shankar's music. Huh. He loved it, but had no idea what these instruments were that captivated him so much. That's totally legit. Can you? Yeah. I mean, I remember when we were kids and it's like you'd hear these crazy world music instruments and be like, what the fuck is making like, that noise? How do they do that? I don't have. How my, did he make his guitar do that? No. no. Like, I don't have the Encyclopedia Britannica on my computer yet. I had old Encyclopedia Britannicas from like 1972. Yeah. And they weren't going to sing to me. No. Yeah. Nope. It was April 5th or 6th in 1965 when George first clapped his eyes on an actual sitar. They were filming a scene for the Beatles movie Help in an Indian restaurant and there were several musicians playing Indian instruments. And George then bought himself a little chintzy one to mess around with. Aww. And that sitar ended up on the recording for Norwegian Wood off the Beatles' 1965 album Rubber Soul, which is often credited as the first Western recording to feature the instrument. Huh. So 1966 rolled around and the Beatles had had it officially. They were over Beatlemania and sick of never getting a moment to themselves mm-hmm. and agreed that touring was never happening again for them. Once their final tour ended in mid-1966, George and Patty traveled to India for six weeks. While there, George studied sitar under Ravi Shankar's tutelage and Patty took lessons in the Dilruba. What's the Dilruba? It's, it looks a lot like the sitar, but it's a bowed instrument. Like you play oh, it with a bow. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Oh, that's like a really fun trip for them. <laughs> but it is, though. Good I, for them. They I got closer. Sounds... They learned some stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I know it sounds condescending, but I don't. I genuinely don't mean it to. Yeah. It does sound lovely. And during this time, George was like super disciplined when learning the sitar. And like he would spend like 12 hours a day just playing one note. Wow. Yeah, that was like the way that they taught people how to do the sitar because you had to play it with a lot of like religious conviction. So oh. you really had to like be in tune with the fucking instrument. You know and what, though? If he's going to have religious conviction about anything, I'm glad it's one note on the sitar. Yeah. There's a lot of worse things he could have <laughs> religious conviction about. I'm fine with this. Yeah, it could be a lot worse. Also, by the end of the six weeks or by the end of... or. I think it was he studied with Ravi for like two years. Wow. In playing the sitar. And at the end of it, Ravi's like, you know, this just isn't your instrument. (gasps) (laughs) Oh, like like he was he was a serviceable sitar player, but he 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 was a guitar player. Yeah. Not a sitar player. Well, he hold up, though. As far as any honky white is concerned, (laughs) he's a great sitar player. He can play some weird-ass fucking instrument with some crazy name. Yo, he's doing such a good job. Such a good job. And meanwhile, yeah, Ravi Shankar's like, hey, you know what? It's a great effort. For a white boy, you're great. I'm going to give you a gold star sticker 
Yeah. Just put it right here on your sitar because I'm proud of you. <laughs> Boop. Just pushes his little button nose proud and walks away. Boop. <laughs> uh, the couple became very close with Ravi and absorbed any teachings he could give them. While George was a disciplined student, again, he would never become a great sitar player. But it was the entire experience of being in India that had the biggest impression on him. He truly believed that India was his true home. Oh, that's nice, though. Back at home, George and Patty continued to study Eastern religion, strictly adhering to a vegetarian diet and practicing yoga. And George brought everything he learned in India to the other Beatles, who were pretty into it. Well... Most of them. Most of them were pretty into it. (laughs) What came next was Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, an album that was pretty much a long psychedelic trip with a soundtrack to match. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Patty was going ham on transcendental meditation. She. (laughs) I want to know how someone could actually go ham on transcendental meditation. You sit real still for a really long time. Yo, I can barely do 15 minutes of regular type yeah, meditation. No, me, me and meditation are just not on that level yet. I've tried. Yeah. At least with yoga, I can move. Right. I can't not move. Yeah. It's hard enough for me to not move while I sleep. You know what I hate about meditation? When they're like, it's okay that another thought comes in your head. Just acknowledge it and let it pass. And I'm like, how do you do that? Thank you. How do you do that? But how? No. No. I'm going to think. It's going to fester. I'm going to think it. And then I'm going to think more thoughts on it. Yeah. I'm going to acknowledge it. And then be like, oh my God, you're right. I didn't turn the coffee pot off. (laughs) Fuck. What do I do? Oh my God. Should I get up during this meditation? Should I turn off now? I mean, it'll probably be fine, right? What if I burn the apartment down? My dog's in there. Oh, oh wait. no. Oh, wait. There's an automatic off. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> yeah. She introduced George to it, and the two went to a lecture by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the leader of the TM movement. Mm-hmm. Then they got the other Beatles and their wives to go to a lecture, and before they knew it, they were all traveling to the Maharishi's ashram in Rishikesh, India, in February 1968. And the trip was great until it wasn't. <laughs> they were supposed to spend three months there meditating and like writing songs and basically fucking off but Ringo left after only 10 days I think because he hated the food Ringo's sensitive stomach as we talked about in the Ringo episode he couldn't eat like most of the food there because it gave him the bubble guts it gave him well beyond the bubble guts it basically destroyed his intestines yeah he really couldn't eat there homeboys never had pizza never no I don't blame him. Because he said don't the sauce do it, is Ringo. too spice. It'll fuck his stomach up. Especially he now is a honky he's... white. Tomato sauce is too spicy. Oh, Ringo's the honky white. Oh. But he's my favorite honky white. No, he's the best honky white. Yeah, he is. <laughs> yeah. And Paul left less than two months into it, I guess, because he got bored. Ah, uh, fucking of course Paul would leave because he got bored. Yeah. John and George left shortly after when their electronics engineer alleged that the Maharishi was sexually harassing the women at the retreat. Yep. Yeah. Mm. George, for his part, was not convinced of the allegations and continued with the Maharishi's teachings. Mm. Yeah. George. Come on, George. Baby, honey, sweetie, what are you doing? But also the guy that alleged that the Maharishi was doing this was like a skeevy fucking character. So I'm not entirely sure who to believe. That's fair. But I think that they both... Can I think they're both skeet balls? Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm gonna. Also, like, I want to hear from the ladies that were at the retreat. 
I don't know what any of them have to say about it. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's unfair, but I do kind of put the Maharishi in kind of the same vein as like the guy at Bikram who create who created yes. Bikram Yoga. Yes. Mm. What a scumbag. Mm. I don't think he's as bad as Bikram, but I don't think he's good either. But he was probably skeeving on somebody. He was a weirdo. He's looking at titties. <laughs> Peeping titties. <laughs> After coming home, the band started work on what would be known as the White Album. Mm-hmm. Sessions for this album were pure torture mm-hmm. and only served to break the band down even more. Mm-hmm. George had, by now, turned towards solo projects outside of the Beatles. He has the distinction of being the first Beatle to put out a solo album. And the album, titled Wonderwall Music, is actually a soundtrack to a movie called Wonderwall. The film's director, Joe Mossett, asked George to provide the score because he couldn't get the Bee Gees to do it. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. But George Harrison is number two behind the Bee Gees. I d- um, where is the Venn diagram I of don't know. Bee Gees and George Harrison soundtrack-wise? <laughs> I can't figure it out. Sure. George only agreed to do it after Mossett said that no matter what George produced, he was going to use it in the movie. And then he said, anyway, here's, here's Wonderwall. Wonderwall. <laughs> Somebody had to do it. Uh, the film was instrumental in bringing the Indian music trend to the Western world. It was also a great opportunity to be experimental, and the song Dream Scene directly influenced John Lennon to write Revolution 9 on the White Album. Oh, shit. And yes, this is where Oasis got the name for the song Wonderwall. Okay. Because you needed so, to know that. No, I'm actually, no, I did need to know. So, like, after all, you're my Wonderwall, so you're my movie that brought Eastern music to the Western culture? Or they're referencing the actual movie and not the soundtrack. Oh. Because the movie is about um, this dude who lives, like, a boring life. Mm-hmm. And he notices a hole in his wall oh. one day. And he looks through it. And it looks into the apartment of this other couple. And the girl is, like, a... She's, like, a model. And... She has photo shoots mm-hmm. in that room all the time. So he ends up becoming like a peeping Tom and like putting more holes in the walls so he can like he like obsessively watches this couple. Oh, God. So maybe that's what they're talking. That's not better. No, that's not bad. That's definitely worse. <laughs> maybe they just really wanted to reference Wonderwall because they love the Beatles. You want to know why? Because it rhymes with after all. Yeah, pretty that's much. Why? All right. Now we know, kids. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Oasis didn't really have any substance to their songs. They were just trying to rhyme words. Look, if if Noel and uh, What's-His-Face weren't, fight- weren't fighting, then they were making up some really convoluted songs. Yeah. But they were jams. Some of them. Have it. Yeah. yeah. He released another solo album entitled Electronic Sound, and that's exactly what it was. <laughs> it was just noise. Oh, no. Is this noise music? Yes. It oh, was... No. An avant-garde album consist- consisting of two lengthy songs performed on a Moog sympathizer synthesizer. <laughs> He's like, I understand. <laughs> I get it. You're right. You're not alone. I'm here to sympathize with you. <laughs> I totally get it. But it's all auto-tuned. <laughs> and auto-tuned to just noise. 
Love it. At this time, moogs were not instruments you could just walk up to and play like a keyboard. Right. It was like a wall cabinet full of buttons, knobs, and cables connected to a keyboard. Oh, God. They were complicated. Just looking at one makes me feel very dumb. (laughs) I hate instruments like that. They were mostly played by dedicated Moog musicians, so Mm -hmm. the fact that George got the hang of it pretty quickly says something about his musical intelligence. Well, you spend two years playing one note on the sitar to only be told, like, (laughs) you're okay. You're all right. But here's this insanely complicated electronic instrument. Have at it. And he's like, all right, I got this. I got this. It's fine. But the sitar, no. Nah. You'll never get it. (laughs) It's not for you, George. Yeah. 1969 through 1970 was a turning point period for George and for the Beatles in general. Yep. As tensions built in the studio while recording Let It Be, George walked out for nearly a week, only coming back when the band agreed to change studios and abandon John's or, nope, abandon Paul's idea for a return to live performances. Oh. Paul was the one who wanted to go back to live music. Yes. Interesting. But also not. Paul was always the one that wanted to go back to live performances. Which is so funny because if you watch him in interviews, like, oh, we just thought we were done. Oh, uh, we didn't really want to do Except it. Except you. It's so tiring. But he so wanted to fucking yeah, do it. He, he was always the one that seemed like he was pretty okay with all of the hype behind right. them. He always seemed like he was the one that kind of enjoyed all the attention that they were getting. And he was the one that really enjoyed performing in front of people. So he always wanted to go out and tour and play shows where everybody else was like, we can't fucking stand it. We can't even hear ourselves. It's no. not fun. Yeah. Teaser for next week. He he did. Yeah. He loved it. Yeah. He loved it. Yeah. In April of 1970, he bought a new estate called Friar Park, located at Henley-on-Thames. The property has a 120-room Victorian neo-Gothic castle. Why? Because why not? You got the money. What are you going to do with all those rooms? I don't know. Okay. And also, it wasn't even built by George. It was built by a lawyer named Frank Crisp. I like that name. I know. Frank Crisp. He eventually... Makes me want Crisp real bad now. I think George eventually wrote a song called, like, The Ballad of Frank Crisp or something like that. (laughs) It was really funny. Yeah, so it has the 120-room Victorian neo-Gothic castle, several water features, a pond with lily pad-like stones you can walk on, a grotto, multiple oversized gnomes just hanging around, and a sandstone replica of the Matterhorn, and extensive gardens where George spent a lot of his time. Who needs a replica of the Matterhorn? George does. Frank Crisp does. Oh, Frank Crisp. <laughs> and then George inherited it. Ladies. Frank Crisp. <laughs> He's just standing in front of, like, the Matterhorn. A giant <laughs> re- replica. fucking replica of a mountain. Ladies. Frank Crisp. <laughs> Matterhorn. <laughs> and he's, like, suit coat is just flapping in the wind. Yeah, his oh. mustache curled up and just, like, fluttering a little bit. Yeah. That's what the ladies like. That's Frank Crisp, ladies. Frank Crisp. <laughs> I love Frank Crisp. I like this legend that we have. Oh, the legend of Frank Crisp. The legend of Frank Crisp. Uh, George also installed a state-of-the-art studio in one of the upstairs guest suites. It was nicknamed FPSHOT, which I'm calling FP Shot. Yeah, I don't FP know. If, shot. I don't know if people say that, but Foop that's shot. Fap shot. Fap shot. Fap shot. 
It's Fapshot. It's Fapshot. Anyway, Fapshot stands for Friar Park Studio Henley on Thames. That's a very creative name. Yeah. This studio is where George recorded most of his solo records. Oh, shit. Then the Beatles decided to torture themselves yet again, going back into the studio to record Abbey Road. Mm -hmm. By September 1970, the Beatles were effectively Splitsville. Mm Mm-hmm. George had written a library's worth of unused songs in a, in the last six or seven years, which he released in an epic solo album in November 1970. Aptly titled All Things Must Pass, this was a triple album comprised of all the songs George had fleshed out during his years as a Beatle, but never got to put on record. I didn't realize it was a triple album. Triple album. Holy shit. Actually, it's not all of the songs that he had. He it was a, a big chunk of the songs that he written, that he had written while he was in the Beatles. Wow. And yeah, I think the third disc is basically just like a, a cool jam session yeah. with him and his friends. And like some instrumentals Because he was just like, stuff. hey, everybody, look at how cool my friends are. <laughs> are they, George? They're a little cool. They're all right. Okay. They're fine. I'm just thinking about one. Waiting for him. <laughs> The album was produced by legendary and criminally insane record producer Phil Spector, who literally just died yesterday. Yeah. Like, as we're recording today, he died yesterday. Sorry, he physically and mentally abused Ronnie Spector and murdered a woman. I have no love lost for his death. No, I'm not going to mention it or celebrate it or um, be sad about it. No. Good riddance. Yeah, Thought you died a long time ago, but here we are. (laughs) Anyway... He also worked on the Beatles' official last album, Let It Be. Right, which everybody actually hated. Yeah, because he didn't do a great job. He kind of ruined a lot of their songs. The Long so. and Winding Road should have been good, but it's and terrible. And it wasn't because of Phil Spector. And his little Spector fingers. <laughs> Phil's mark is plastered all over the album in a good way, though. His wall of sound technique works really well here, especially on the album's second single, What Is Life?, which I have been fucking jamming mm. to for the last week. Also, it's very exemplary on Wawa. Wawa yeah. is a really fun song, too. Yeah, honestly, when you told me to listen to it the other day, I was like, oh, shit, this does bop. Yeah. So you just walk around going, Wawa. But what is life? What is life? What is life is amazing. Yeah. No, what if what is life? Is what a fucking jam. Kiss. Holy shit. Yeah, it's extremely reminiscent of 60s Beatles mixed with songs by girl groups like the Ronettes. Mm -hmm. Aside from the 60s pop influences, folk rock leaves its impression all over the record. George had a great friendship with Bob Dylan for years and was hugely influenced by the folk rock movement. The two musicians wrote songs for each other often and collaborated on this album's opening track, I'd Have You Anytime. And Bob Dylan's mark is especially noticeable on George's subsequent releases. The most beloved song from All Things Must Pass is, of course, My Sweet Lord. My sweet Lord. Hallelujah. I, I actually have to say that's one of my least favorite George songs. It's it's, it's a, not a bad it's song. Fine. It's a bit overplayed. It's just a bit overplayed. And honestly, if you listen to the whole thing, it's kind of the same thing over and over again i mean that's kind of his thing oh is it yeah well it's not as noticeable on his other maybe it is and i just don't i just it's a little slow for me yeah it's got a sweet guitar part though that guitar part though that's very good that's good 
I like he that. He sounded exactly like his guitar. Yay! Well, my guitar gently. <laughs> That's what it does. <laughs> it You're does. not wrong. Anyway. A very sweet and joyful folksy gospel song that is the musical embodiment of, yeah, man, I'm just happy to be here. Yeah, it is. He wanted it to have a universal message. No matter who your God is, this song can be about them. And it's got a sweet ass guitar hook. Oh, God, he's right. You can totally make this song about any God. Yeah, it's very non-denominational. He's very smart. Despite the fact that it is very influenced it references Eastern religions a oh, lot, but yeah, it's yeah. still very non-denominational. Yeah. Smart marketing. Yes. Smarketing. <laughs> Smarketing. Mm. The inspiration for the song came from the Edwin Hawkins singer's version of the Christian hymn, Oh Happy Day, which when I was re- writing my notes for this, I wrote that part out and I'm like, well, now I have to watch the scene in Sister Act 2 when they sing Oh Happy Day and oh, the kid from yeah. City High is really shy and then Whoopi Goldberg is like, but no, you got a good voice. You just have to do la 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 very <laughs> a lot and then like you can sing really good and it works. <laughs> City <laughs> High Kid did amazing. City High Kid did so good. Yeah. <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg and George Harrison. What a pair. Am what I right? What a pair. They should have made a movie together. They should have. But others thought the song took a little too much inspiration from the Ronnie Mack song, He's So Fine. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's the one that, how does that one go? It's like, he's so fine. He, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like My Sweet Lord. Yeah. I forgot about this. Yeah. Bright Tunes Music Corporation filed suit against George for copyright infringement on February 10th, 1971. The suit was drawn out for six years, after which the judge found George guilty of copyright infringement, though he said he did it subconsciously. Probably. Yeah, maybe. He's still smoking a lot of weed. (laughs) <laughs> drinking a little like yeah. I get that and in the 60s he probably heard it because they were hanging out with girl groups and shit so yeah right. but <sighs> it's a blatant ripoff somebody should have been as get a grip for and was like you know this sounds just well, like he's you, so fine right when you listen to the two songs the only like obvious similarity I heard was the part when he you know when he sings I really want to see you yeah that part you can definitely pick out and he's so fine but the rest of it is like not really similar enough to me hmm. to to be a, a blatant ripoff and also do they have that sweet guitar part exactly mm. like they also have he has the guitar part he wrote most of it in a completely different era a different decade so yeah. also like it, it begs the question what even is original anymore exactly i hate copyright suits it's kind of like this one had a big effect cares? on on copyright suits going forward. Oh, too. you don't say. Yeah. Copyright can lick my balls. <laughs> At this point, there is no such thing as an original melody. The Beatles pretty much wrote every single one, and they pretty much ripped off all of the black men and women that wrote them first. Yeah. So. I mean, if we really want to get into copyright. If we really want to do that, then we should be paying reparations to every single black musician that has ever written anything pre-1950. Yeah. I mean, the only people who benefit from copyright laws is rich people. Yep. <laughs> if you're poor, you got nothing. That was very Madonna. 
I've been through the wilderness. I got to sue <laughs> bitches that I don't like because I think they sound like me. Yep. Because yeah. I've got money. <laughs> so, yeah. Apparently, he did this subconsciously. He was ordered to pay Bright Tunes nearly $1.6 million. <gasps> what? But he went out in the end. Negotiations ended with George only having to pay about 600000 and he got the rights to He's So Fine. Wow. I, wow. There's a lot of layers on this. There are so many. I simplified this whole thing mm-hmm. very much. There are so many layers. It dragged out for so long. It really, like, wore on his psyche Aww, a lot. I bet. Because, like, Jesus. it's the song that's really special to him, and he really liked it. It was his biggest hit. So mm. it was like, wow, everyone's just trying to fucking kill me and, like, take all my money. Yeah. Because I wrote this song. Oh, yeah. that is kind of sad. He continued with a hectic schedule despite refusing to play live shows. The only live shows he played were the two concert for Bangladesh shows mm-hmm. on August 1st, 1970. These shows were set up by George and Ravi Shankar to raise awareness and funds for refugees in East Pakistan who were victims of genocide. Do not ask me the politics of what was going on. I have (laughs) no idea. I I wasn't gonna. I didn't even have a hot take. I'm like, just keep going. I I have nothing to say. This is just interesting. I looked up the, the Wikipedia page about it and I had flashbacks to trying to understand the Armenian genocide when we did our toxicity <gasps> yes. episode. And I was like, I don't have the brain power for this right now. I can't. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, yeah. A lot of that stuff is unfortunately incredibly complicated. It and is. It and would take years of dissertation to yeah, figure out. And, I, and after reading all of it, there would be no way that I would be able to just sum it up. So I'm just like, right. I'm just going to be very... Um, Hey, this happened and they're trying yeah. to and they're like, trying they're trying to support and help and exactly stop genocide right the shows were wildly popular and the first of its kind big names shared the stage with george including ringo eric clapton and bob dylan it set the precedent for benefit shows getting big names together for one purpose and ultimately raised $13.5 million. Wow. Far beyond the $25,000 <gasps> Ravi initially wanted to raise. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. What followed the concerts for Bangladesh was a tumultuous period. Legal battles that lasted for years prevented the money from actually getting to Bangladesh. It was extremely frustrating that he couldn't just get the money where it needed to be. Ugh. Everybody that shared the stage with him had to get approval from their record company first. But record companies were being fucking dicks. No way. And just dragging this shit out and like doing legal negotiations for fucking years. It was so ridiculous. But it was a big learning experience. Right. And Bob Geldof benefited so much from talking to George Harrison about this thing mm-hmm. when he started to do Live Aid. Uh-huh. All of the mistakes and shit that George learned, Bob didn't have to do any of nope. that because he asked George about it first, which was smart yeah, on yeah. his... Yeah, yeah. It was smart on his part, but also fuck Bob, Bob Geldof. I don't... Ah, I don't <laughs> like that guy. Now we're going to talk about him. <laughs> fuck him. <laughs> I fucking hate that guy. <laughs> I hate everybody in this episode. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. George is cool. Ringo's is cool. That's I mean, about it. George is okay. Ringo's cool. George is still my favorite. We'll get to that later. Oh, okay. 
At home, George's marriage was falling apart. Mm, we jo- kind of alluded to this yeah. in the Ringo episode. George had a very conservative view of marriage and from the beginning expected Patty to basically stay home and cook. Mm-hmm. Which, um, not cool, George. No, he also made her quit modeling, right? He sure did. Great. She went along with it for years, but she'd had enough playing house. So she was all Jennifer Lopez about this at this point. Much like Jennifer Lopez, she had had enough. Good for her. She resumed modeling despite George's vehement opposition to it. Well, why not? She loves modeling. She's right, just babe. let her fucking let her do, do it. What she wants to do. It's more income. Like, chill, bro. Let her do it. Like, I but mean, also, you're gone all the time, like, recording music. What do you want her to do all fucking day? Right. But also, like, she doesn't need to ask for your permission? No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. George's response to all these stressors? God and a lot of coke. <laughs> yeah. Jesus, take the blow. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, just put it in a line so I can snort it like i need you to take my credit card and And do it for me i am too fucked up to do it can you please roll up this dollar bill yeah all right let's go thanks god (laughs) he flip-flopped back and forth between being extremely dedicated to the Hare krishna movement and partying his ass off with his rock star friends in london clubs i feel like there's a theme going on with the beatles here yeah his hard partying ways almost cost the couple their lives when he crashed their Mercedes into a lamppost at 90 <gasps> miles an hour in oh. 1972. <sighs> yeah. Bro didn't see the newly installed roundabout in the road and just went straight through it into a fucking lamppost. Holy shit. Patty had a bad concussion and several broken ribs, <gasps> while George suffered a head wound and lost his license for the second time that year. George is also a speed freak, as in cars, <laughs> yeah. both, both Coke and cars, um, and really like to go way over the speed limit and just be a dick on the road. You know, like the sitar, George, speeding <laughs> just might not be Driving for you. Driving just, you're not, you know. You're not going to Tokyo drift, George. I'm sorry. I know what you you're trying to do. certainly cannot Tokyo drift in a gigantic boat of a Mercedes. Hold on. Now I'm just picturing Vin Diesel being like, it's just not for you, man. You're trying. You're doing your best. The Vin Diesel as George Harrison. No, no. I mean, like, instead of Robbie Shankar, now now it's Vin Diesel. Diesel. Like, you can't, man. You can't too fast, too furious. It's a baby Vin Diesel. Like, literally a newborn Vin Diesel. (laughs) He's like, I'm just real sorry, George. You're not going to be able to do it. You can't do it. It's not for you. His Ferrari's real cool, though. It is very cool. <laughs> George wrote most of his next album, Living in the Material World, while in his manic religion phases. Ooh, that's fun. The bulk of the album dealt with spiritual devotion and Hare Krishna teachings. He intended to have Phil Spector produce this record also, but this was Phil's erratic behavior period, so he didn't do much producing. Mm, yeah. I'm pretty sure all of Phil Spector's life was his erratic behavior period. So how this differentiates from any other time in his life, I don't know. This time he just wasn't taking work. Yeah. Yeah. This this might have been after Phil's really horrible accident. Maybe. Yeah. I think because his was like in the early 70s. Yeah. Everybody's having accidents in the early 70s. 
guys, you're, you're like of, 30 years too early for Fast and Furious. Lots of drug-fueled oopsies happening. Oh my god, drug-fueled oopsies. oopsies. George continued drinking heavily and relying on lots of coke to get him through the press junket for this album. Although the album was a big religious lecture, he was spiritually lost and having multiple affairs without seeming to really care if Patty found out. Oh, yeah. No. We know. Yeah, this is a weird fucking time for these guys. Yeah. I'm not sure of the exact timeline of this, but at some point, George confessed his love for Ringo's wife, Maureen. Yep. And the two had a brief affair. I'm not sure if they slept together before or after he actually told Ringo he was in love with her. It was her. before. It was before? Yeah, they had been bowing in for a while. I was like, okay. Well, the way Ringo, me mm. and your wife, knocking o- boots. Oopsie. Oops. <laughs> so we might have had a little bit of oopsie, oopsie. when I stuck my little penis inside her. <laughs> actually, that's not fair. I'm sure George had a good penis. I don't mean to call it little. <laughs> George. I'm sure they all had just fine penises. Yeah, I'm sure his penis was fine. Oh, there we go. (laughs) Oh, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Patty had an affair with George's friend Ronnie Wood, soon to be guitarist of the Rolling Stones. George also had an affair with Ronnie's wife, Chrissy Wood. Oh, for fuck's sake. I know. It's so stupid. And then there was Eric Clapton. And then there was Eric fucking Fucking Clapton. Clapton. Eric had been desperately in love with Patty for years. Maybe one day Patty will love me too. Fuck you. (laughs) Layla! (laughs) I'm just going to call her Layla from now on. Nobody will know they're really singing, Patty! (laughs) Actually, just Patty does not sound as good as Layla. True. (laughs) Can you imagine... Patty, get me on my knees. Patty, bring it, darling, please. Please, my Patty. <laughs> oh, we need to do that. We need to cover this. All right. He and George had become great friends and musical collaborators in the late 60s. And over time, Eric became infatuated with Patty. To a point of writing albums worth of songs about her and even dating her sister. Oh, Jenny? No, Paula. Oh, I did not really share. There was another Boyd sister and he dated her. Well, shit. These Boyd sisters are like, well, gorgeous. We going to get it. They are all quite gorgeous. They did it. They did. Good Good for for you. Good for you, Boyd sisters. Here are all these stupid fucking idiots fighting over us and then cheating on us. All right, let's fuck with them. Yeah. Hmm. Eric made advances on Patty in 1970, but she rebuffed him. That sent him into a downward spiral of heroin addiction and isolation. Wait a minute. Hold up. Yep. No, no. Mm -hmm. No, I'm rewinding. Mm -hmm. So George, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. I want a wife who sits at home and cooks and cleans Mm -hmm. and is loyal to me. Mm -hmm. Patty went to model again. Mm. I think I'm going to fuck one of my mate's wives. Yep. And then another mate's wife. And then just keep fucking wife. Are you cheating on me? I wanted a loyal, dedicated wife. Mm-hmm. Oh, the hypocrisy is not lost on me at all. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. The hypo- okay. The hypocrisy is like slapping me in the face. Like so real then hard. Patty's like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm gonna do my thing. And I'm George gonna is fuck like, Ronnie. And then George is like, how fucking dare you? And you're like, really? Yeah. 
Anyway. And then Eric Clapton's like, but I'm in love with you. And she's like, fine, let's do this. Right. But then, like, also going back to the Ringo episode, like, Maureen was all pissed off that Ringo cheated on her. And I'm like, bitch, you st- what? Like, oh, what? you, nobody what? has, what? first of all, You're nobody. You're all ha- a fucking mess. Nobody in this situation has any right to be in a monogamous relationship. No. Period. No. Second of all, nobody has the right to be conservative about who they want no. in a wife or no. a husband and then go fuck everybody they fucking see no. while they're out of town. Right. The zip code out of town thing doesn't. Oh, you mean different hoes in different area codes? Yes. That does not <laughs> actually work. <laughs> that is not how you do it. Like all of this could have been cleared up if everyone was just like, all right, well, when I'm on the road, I'm going to fuck people and you can fuck people too. And there you go. All you had to do. But no. Everybody's got their morals and they have their own morals and you can't have yours. Clearly they don't have any morals because none of them stuck to their fucking morals. Anyway, Eric Clapton and heroin. He's a piece of shit. Oh. Anyway, when he snapped out of it and again tried to convince Patty to leave George, she was ripe for agreement. (laughs) Like I'm looking at this so much differently now because it's like. He only got with Patty finally because she was sick of George's shit. And I'm pretty sure he only wanted Patty because he basically wanted anything that George had. Because he was jealous of George. Yes. Anytime George went and joined another band. Like he joined another band in 1969 during a break in the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And as soon as George joined, Eric was like, "But I'm no, I want to join. I want to join. This is my band. It's my band. <laughs> Seriously, anytime George showed interest in something, Eric was like, no, I want it. It's mine. Wow. And if he didn't get it, he like lost his mind. And went on a heroin binge. Yes, exactly. Oh my God, Eric Clapton's the worst. The worst. Patty and George separated in 1974, but their divorce wasn't finalized until June 9th, 1977. All things considered, it was a pretty amicable split. There was no fighting over money. They didn't have kids, so there was no custody battle. And even though his best friend was with his ex-wife, George stayed friends with Patty and Eric. He even attended their wedding in 1979. Yep, there was a near Beatles reunion when Paul, yeah. George, and Ringo all played together. Yeah. Still no John. And um, other people from, I think, Cream also played. And one of them was like, thank God nobody recorded that because we played like fucking shit but you know if that was ever recorded and released today like so many boomer dudes be like this is the fucking oh, best would, thing i've ever heard yeah, they would jizz this themselves genius. over it yeah the quality's just bad because it was like just at a wedding no dude they were no they all were all fucking, drunk and high on coke they were like, all off their fucking faces brah yeah and that's fine you don't have to play good i'm glad they all had fun if, as long as everybody's having a good time and there aren't any fist fights and nobody's like fucking somebody else's wife in the bathroom in the back or something yeah. which i'm sure probably somebody without did. consent without consent as long as it's with consent that's fine without yeah. consent we have words we got words but there's consent so we're fine yes that was a lovely day. <laughs> Eric and Patty's Great. wedding was a lovely day. And it all went downhill from there. Yes, it did. The period between 1974 and 1978 was hectic to say the least. Instead of trying to unwind from his failed marriage, George dove headfirst into the first U.S. tour by any ex-Beatle. At the same time, he started work on his next album called Dark Horse and produced an album by Ravi Shankar. 
He also started his own record label called Dark Horse Records. Ah, yes. Had a creative hand in the music festival from India and had to keep up with his 24-year-old girlfriend, Kathy Simmons. How old was he at this point? 30? I think he was 30-something. Wait, it was 74 to 77, you said? Yeah, so he would have been... he was born in, like, 73, so he was, like, 31 to, like, 34. He was born in 43. That's what it is. (laughs) So he was, like, between 31 and 34, yes. My math was right. My words were wrong. Yes. It was a dark period in George's life, and he dealt with it with a lot of alcohol and coke. Wouldn't you know? Weird. The coke kept him going, and the cognac calmed him down. The Fleetwood Mac method. The good old Fleetwood Mac method. Yeah. I can't wait for the rock candy days where we're doing the Fleetwood Mac method. I'm already doing it. Except it's not Coke. It's monster energy drinks. <laughs> just mod- like she pounds it. Guys, legit. She'll walk in here sometimes pounding a monster and then she'll just start drinking a cider. I it's pounded great. one on my way um, on my 10 minute drive here. Oh, I was hoping you would come with some because I was oh. a little smeeps. I should have told oh. you. I still had some in the car. I should have brought it in. I'm sorry. That's all right. We both. It's our Fleetwood Mac, like baby (laughs) junior version. (laughs) Yeah. The Dark Horse tour did not go well, and audiences were pretty outspoken about hating it. Oh. They thought George did too much sermonizing, and they didn't like that he gave so much spotlight to other band members. And his voice was shot from laryngitis, and he kept changing lyrics to to Beatles songs. Oh, which, no. which you don't fucking do. No. Oh, no. George. Yeah. Honey, baby, sweet who, child. Who is your advisor? Who are We you? need words. After the Dark Horse tour, George pretty much never toured again. He did do another one. And even after that, he was like, no, this is a fucking bad idea. What am I doing? Dark Horse, the album, was released in December, and it did not do well. Mm-mm. It was kind of the summation of that entire year of 1974. It dealt a lot with the dissolution of his marriage and the regression of his spiritual journey, but the songs were written during drug-fueled benders after staying up for 24 hours straight. Oh, no. Because at first I'm like, oh, well, that sounds like a relatable, interesting, oh, drug benders, never mind. But yeah, like written during drug benders. Yeah, no, not relatable. <laughs> you ever go back and read shit you write down when you were really drunk? You're like, <laughs> you thought you were a fucking genius. You went oh, back we and do read that all the time like, when, you, when we have drunken ideas for the podcast and then three days later we go back to it and you're like i don't know what any of these mean i don't know why we thought this was so funny this was not hilarious why did i think raging boners was the funniest (laughs) thing i ever said i mean raging boners are funny yeah but not that funny (laughs) (laughs) things began to turn around when george met olivia arias she worked at a&m records which was the distributor for george's label after meeting in 1974, they began a very intense relationship, falling in love immediately. And Olivia was already into meditation and the Hare Krishnas Aww. and shit. So you so would say it's it was smittense? It was smittense. Yeah. yeah. So they fit together perfectly. Olivia is credited with grounding George and calming him down, curbing his drug and alcohol abuse. It's exemplified in his next album, 1976's 33 and a Third. Despite, or maybe in spite of, losing the My Sweet Lord legal battle and contracting hepatitis B in early in the early months of 1976. How do you even get B? I assume you, like, he cut your finger on a can. Like what? I assume he got it somehow when he was on like a drug and alcohol fueled bender. He must have. That's how he thought he got it. Wow. Yeah. 
yeah, he contracted hepatitis B, then got sued by A&M for $10 million because the album was late. Oh, eat my dick. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah, they were really just trying to to have a reason to kick him off the label Ugh. at that point. Yeah, the album turned out relatively even keeled despite all of that. Good. It even included this song, a number that sardonically made fun of the plagiarism case, but there were zero hits on the album. And I sent you the video yes, for this song. I didn't it know is that's what it was about. I hilarious. Love it. Yeah. Oh my oh my god, it all makes sense now. Yeah. Oh, cause the vi- okay. Pause this for a hot second. <laughs> Go look up the video for this song. First of all, the song is really cute. Yeah, it it's is a very fun. cute song. And now that I know like it's about all the stupid lawsuit shit, I'm like, oh, that's adorable. He, he satirizes it very well. Yes. And then he's going to jail and he's in court and they're all. And the court is just, it's a kangaroo court. Oh. If you will. Yes. Mm-hmm. It was adorable. Definitely watch very, it. Very, very So cute. much fun. Life started revolving around home and family by the late 1970s. He was becoming increasingly disillusioned with the music industry with no real burning desire to get back into the studio. Don't blame you. He also couldn't relate to popular artists of the time. He wasn't impressed with Bowie, <gasps> didn't like the new wave of heavy metal coming from the from the UK, and punk was an enigma to him. Oh, maybe, he, maybe George, George, come on. Yeah. Bowie? He did not get Bowie. Judas Priest? Nope. Did not like it. I'll and, give you the Sex Pistols. And punk was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Like, I get that. Yeah, I get why you don't <laughs> like them. But, like, any punk was just not not his thing. He thought it was musically simple and... It is. And not in a good way. Mm. Simple because they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Maybe get off your high dark horse, George. Maybe get off that horse. <laughs> that gives horse. a new meaning to dark horse. Yeah, it does. yeah, but he basically became a musical curmudgeon. <laughs> He's like, I don't like that new music my kids are making. Oh my god, wait, he was like our age now. Yes, he was actually thirty three and a third when thirty three and a third came out. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, he was younger than we are now, and he was like, "This music these days, I don't understand it." I mean, hey, we came around on Billie Eilish, so I think we're pretty progressive. <laughs> I mean, give us props. We're no George Harrison. Yeah, but he had home stuff to care about instead. George and Olivia's only child, Donnie, was born on August first, nineteen seventy-eight. Who looks? So much like his dad. It's scary. So fucking scary. Very, very scary. He doesn't have as dark of eyes Mm -mm. as George did, but wow. (laughs) Spinning image. Yeah. He was named after the sixth and seventh notes on the Indian music scale, Da and Ni. Oh, that's cute. One month later, on September 2nd, George and Olivia tied the knot in a small private ceremony at the Henley Registry Office. Also cute. Yeah. Good for them. Good for them. Shortly after that, George released his self-titled album and started retreating from public life. He hated doing press junkets for this album and didn't have his heart in it anymore. And that's probably why his next project was a movie that had nothing to do with him at all. Good for him. Monty Python's Life of Brian wouldn't have been released if it weren't for George Harrison. I 
that was totally <laughs> forgot about this. <laughs> I have not seen Life of Brian, and I really need to see it now. Oh and yeah, I feel no, you really so do. guilty for not seeing it. You would enjoy it. It's good times. But yeah, I wow, that went into left field. Total left field. Thank and, you for that. And I'm okay with it. A longtime friend and fan of the comedy troupe, he came to their rescue when EMI refused to bankroll the movie. George put his house up as collateral to finance it. Were they like, it's real offensive, though. They're making fun of Jesus. <laughs> That's exactly what EMI said. I knew it. Yeah. They were like, no, it could be religiously offensive, so we're not going to do it. And George was like, fuck that. I'm going to finance it. Good for, yeah. All yeah. right. Turn in. You know what? He's going down this path. I'm like, I don't know. You're kind of curmudgeon And then he's like, but Monty Python. But Monty right? Python, like, guys. Still all right. hilarious. All right, guys. He's right. Luckily, it was a success. And it led to the development of Handmade Films, a company that produced many films for Monty Python alum and beyond. Nice. After bristling with Monty Python's Terry Gilliam over Terry's headstrong ways and refusal to compromise, George retreated from handmade films and left most of his financial decisions to Dennis O'Brien, his longtime business partner and attorney. That was a mistake. Oh, no. Because Dennis O'Brien was not a good businessman. Oh, no. After a handful of box office bombs in the 80s, the company was in debt. Eventually, in the 90s, George sued Dennis for fraud and negligence, and he was awarded $11.6 million. Yes. Right? Like, I get that. But mm-hmm. there is a part of me that's like, wow, you let him run this for that long and, like, never once checked in. He'd be like, wow, the finances. Yeah. Like, I don't think Dennis is 100% at fault for everything that happened. Like, he was a shady character. Oh, yeah. Like, Dennis 100% probably yeah. sucked. However, However, George, you were on the board. You should ask questions. Yeah. Like, you can't just say, well, looks like Dennis got it then. Dennis I'm gonna go. Up. I'm just gonna go take a nap for ten years. I'll come back and get real mad if things aren't pretty perfect. much what he did. That's not fair. Yeah, you can't do that. I mean, you can, but you shouldn't. But you shouldn't. It's common courtesy. <laughs> yeah. George was in the middle of recording his album somewhere in England when the news broke of John Lennon's murder on December eighth, nineteen eighty. His sister Louise called Friar Park at 5 a.m. the next day to deliver the news, but George kind of just rolled over and went back to sleep. Yep. Because yeah. he was in a daze. Like, yeah. He, he basically was... said he didn't even know what happened because yeah, he was he, so asleep. He was like half asleep at 5 o'clock in the morning and Olivia was like, hey, John Lennon just died. He was murdered. And he was just like, I'm sleeping. Right, but I'm I'm not going to fault him for that because, like, how many times have you gotten, like, a phone call in the middle of the night and maybe it even was an emergency and you were so tired and you're like, it's, like, 2 in the morning and you're like, I don't want to take, I don't have to take this seriously and you roll back over. Yeah, and there's just sometimes when you're like, I cannot think about this. I am so asleep. Right, like, your brain, you're physically incapable of comprehending it. Yeah. I'm not going to hold that against him. Because there are some times when, like, my house will make a really loud, scary noise and it'll wake me up. And instead of being terrified and hiding under my covers, I'm like, "Uh, no, I'm just going back to sleep. I'll deal with it in the morning. Yeah. And I mean, I've definitely gotten phone calls, not about anyone passing, but just about, like, people in an emergency. And I'm like, I'll deal with it in the morning. Okay, good night. Shut up. Leave me alone. Yeah. Because you're just, your brain isn't at that level of thinking. Right. It's fine. But also, the two hadn't spoken in two years. Oh, really? Their relationship 
was like brothers that hadn't spoken in a long time. Yeah. There was always an underlying bond that will never be broken, no matter how little they speak to each other. So, of course, George was affected by John's death, but he kept his grief private, Mm. which I get. Like, George is that kind of person who is not going to let people see him. George is the least Piscean Pisces I've ever met. Yeah. First of all. Because, like, hold up. That is not what a person that is born the day after you does. my (laughs) God. No, he was born the same day as me. Hold up. Uh, Technically, yes. Technically. But also, like, you know when I am having a hard time, because I will fucking talk about it to, like... Yeah. The cows come home. I'm like, everything's terrible. Yeah. Oh. No, George is the most Capricorn Pisces I have ever seen in my life. He might be Capricorn rising. Maybe. Mm. He could be. He's just the combination of us. He really is. He's inside, like, just stupid emotional, but on the outside, he's like, I'm not having feelings. Yeah. What are feelings? I'm English. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so he insisted on continuing recording that day, even though no one could possibly concentrate on the music. Mm. Somewhere in England was released on June 1st, 1981, and included a touching song about John. All Those Years Ago was originally meant for Ringo, but he didn't feel comfortable singing it. Right. So George included it on his album, even asking Ringo, Paul, and Paul's wife, Linda, to sing backing vocals. Oh, yeah. It's very sweet. It is really sweet. I actually completely forgot that it ended up on George's album. Yep. He then released Gone Tropo in 1982, but it should have been titled Gone Under the Radar. Ah! Get out. I don't even care about the rest of the story. (laughs) Done. Done. (laughs) For the next several years, he didn't make any public appearances or release any music. But the world finally got more music from George in 1987. Oh. Cloud Nine was released on November 2nd and would be his 11th and last studio album released in his lifetime. It featured an impressive roster of musicians, including Jeff Lynne from Electric Light Orchestra yeah, as yellow. producer. <laughs> yeah, Yellow. I fucking like Yellow. <laughs> Am I the only one who likes Yellow? It, every time you say it, I think you're saying Yellow. And I'm like, Yellow. Yeah, yellow. 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 Oh my god, I am saying yellow. <laughs> Fuck. Jeff Lynn would become George's next great collaborative partner. And the biggest single to come off Cloud Nine is, of course, I got my mind set on you. I got my mind set on you. Oh god, it's such a fucking good song. This was George's first number one hit since 1973. No shit. But it wasn't an original composition. What? George first heard the original performed by James Ray while visiting his sister Louise in the United States in 1963. He bought the James Ray album, which he didn't really like, except for (laughs) this one one song. But how many times have we done that? You buy an album because you're like, that song, you're like, wow, the rest of this album is hot garbage. Eve Six, Heart in a Blender song. Oh, shout out to Eve Six, best Twitter ever. Yeah. Yeah, and he got a number one hit out of it. Got My Mind Set on You, reignited George's career, and gave him a load of inspiration that he hadn't felt in years, but he didn't want to go it alone. He recruited an all-star lineup to form the rock supergroup, The Traveling Wilburys. Wow. 
Yes. The idea for the group came during the Cloud Nine sessions, and George and Jeff Lynn came up with the band's name before they even had the band. I would love to know where this name came from. Please. Well, I'm going to tell you. Please. If recording mistakes happened in the studio, George would say, we'll bury them in the mix. Get it? Oh, my <laughs> gourd. <laughs> Jeff suggested putting traveling in front of it, and Bob's your uncle. Bob's your uncle. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Originally, they recruited Roy Orbison, Bob Dylan, and Tom Petty to record a song from one of George's European singles. The resulting song, Handle With Care, was too mm-hmm. good for a B-side, and his record company asked for a whole album. Thus, the Traveling Wilburys were formed. Oh, shit. Their first album, Traveling Wilburys Volume 1, was released on October 18th, 1988, and was a total success. They also had success. a lot of confidence being calling it Volume 1. They're like, we're totally going to make two of these, right, guys? Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Handle With Care hit number 45 on the Billboard Hot 100, and End of the Line was a decent hit as well. Yeah. Compared to his experiences working with the Beatles, the Traveling Wilburys was absolute bliss. I could see that, like, considering who's... Like, Tom Petty seems like a real chill motherfucker. Yeah. Roy Orbison, he seems like the funny guy. Yeah. And then Jeff Lynne, I feel like, is, like, the laid-back guy who's, like... No, he, I like, can work crea- with this. Like, the creative type who's, like, no, no, I see what you're putting down, but what if we did... Right. I feel like Bob Dylan would be the most pain in the ass. I don't really like that. I really want to sing like this instead. <laughs> Why is this song this way? very good that's it's the, exactly... actually the worst that's the worst bob dylan yeah. i've ever done because i've been doing so much british accents <laughs> that i'm very confused right now yeah everyone everyone has a very distinct bob accent. dylan yeah oh <laughs> and yeah yeah we'll go with that actually no you're right everybody in the traveling wilburys definitely has a very distinct voice and somehow they make it work it like works so tell, well. You can tell when Roy Orbison's singing. Mm-hmm. You can tell when um, Tom when Petty's singing. You can tell when like you can tell when every one of them is singing. Yeah, it's good. It's great. But yet they harmonize so beautifully together. Chef's kiss. It's like they're professional musicians or something. Weird. <laughs> Everyone was treated as an equal, and they all supported each other. It was light years ahead of his creatively stunting experience in the sixties. I bet. Yeah. Ooh. The band released a second album, purposefully titled Traveling Wilburys Volume 3. What? (laughs) What? No. Volume 3. Nope. Yes. Because there was a bootleg that got released in between those two that George um, jokingly labeled Volume 2. George, you fucked it up. Yeah. I'm really upset about this. His humor is really coming out in this band. Is it? But yeah, Volume 3 came out on October 29th, 1990. It was bittersweet since Roy Orbison passed away from a heart attack only a couple months after the release of Volume 1. Oh, I didn't know that's when he passed away. Yeah. That's really sad. Yeah. Oh. They didn't replace him, though, because you can't replace Roy Orbison. Yeah, right? Traveling Wilburys effectively ended after the release of Volume 3, mainly because George didn't want a tour. He had done a solo tour of Japan in 1991 with Eric Clapton, and after that, he was like, nah, I never need to do this ever again. Mainly because you're with Eric Clapton. It was with Eric Clapton. Instead of touring, he went back into the studio. 
1994, he, Paul, and Ringo began work on a pretty intense project called the Beatles Anthology. Yep. The project consisted of a documentary, three double CDs of mostly unreleased songs, and a book on the history of the band. Mm -hmm. It was wildly popular, and two brand new Beatles singles were released from it. Free as a Bird and Real Love. I really like Free as a Bird. I love Free as a Bird. I remember when it came out. And I, I remember it was when so the video good. debuted. Yes. And I was like, this is great. This is the Beatles. What? It was like kind of one of my first real um, acknowledgments of the Beatles. Because you yes. hear the Beatles growing up. But yeah. Because what is it? Like 95 it came out? Yes. Yeah. So we were 11. Yeah. And that's when I think like we were starting to really come into our own with music taste. Mm-hmm. And I'm like. I can comprehend that this is a good song. Right. Because now I have taste. Right. Exactly. <laughs> New kids in the block. I mean. Not taste. I mean, my tastes were questionable. My very first tape I ever brought, bought myself with my own money was Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Ooh. So I almost said fucky bunch. <laughs> I mean. <but laughs> kind of. Like, that kinda. makes sense. Yeah. he ha- yeah. He's got a bunch and they're fucky. So. <laughs> he's definitely a fuck. <laughs> He's a bunch of fucks, so yeah. <laughs> there we go. We did it. Anyway, making the Beatles anthology was a pretty good experience. It was difficult at times because of the mo- the emotional aspect, of course. with John Lennon's death foremost on everyone's minds. But only a few short years later, though, Paul and Ringo would have to grapple with the death of another bandmate. Mm. Sometime after taping a VH1 special with Ravi Shankar in May 1997, George found a lump on his neck. He got it checked out and was informed that it was cancerous. He was diagnosed with throat cancer, thought to have been brought on by decades of smoking. Oh, yeah. No, George was a chimney. He was a chimney, and he didn't smoke just like Marlboros or something. He smoked those fucking heavy ass French cigarettes that had like twice as much tobacco and tar and nicotine and everything in it. I did not know that. Jeez, yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. He was, he probably contributed more to air pollution in the 70s oh and 70s than any factory in the UK possibly could have done. <laughs> oh no, George. Yeah. But it was treatable and after undergoing radiotherapy, he was told the cancer was gone. Good. But But. (laughs) while going through this scary health crisis, George and Olivia had an even scarier incident to deal with at home. Oh, right. In an incident that undoubtedly reminded him of John Lennon's murder, the couple was attacked in their Friar Park home on December 30th, 1999. Yeah. 33-year-old Michael Abram, who suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, somehow made it over the razor wire fence and through the grounds, broke a window, and entered the house. That's fucking terrifying. Yeah. He hit Olivia over the head and attacked George, stabbing him over 40 times. I don't know how he fucking made it through that. I don't know. One wound was so deep that George's lung was punctured. (gasps) Yeah. It was... It was like near fucking death. Jesus. Michael Abram was incapacitated by Olivia when she repeatedly hit him with a fireplace poker and a lamp. She saved George's fucking life. Yes, she fucking did. Yep. That's why Olivia is a fucking boss ass bitch. She is. I mean, like, she's actually a boss ass bitch for a plethora of reasons. Oh, yeah. And that is on the top five. Yes, definitely. Don't fuck with her. George was hospitalized, undergoing surgery to have the punctured part of his lung removed. Oh. Michael Abrams was arrested and charged with attempted murder. 
He was found not guilty by reason of insanity and sent to a secure psychiatric facility. I, yeah, that's all right. Fine. Like, he what he did have paranoid schizophrenia. I get it. Yeah, yeah. And, like, hopefully treated, he's not but also dangerous. not released. Right. George recovered physically, but mentally it was all too much. He'd always been paranoid about stalkers, and John Lennon's murder elevated that to an even higher level. Mm -hmm. But this near-death experience confirmed he had good reason to be paranoid. Right. There wasn't enough razor wire in the world to make George feel secure, and he was considering selling Friar Park until he was hit with more bad news. Mm. In early May of 2001, George underwent another surgery to remove a cancerous growth in his lungs. Doctors reported the surgery a success, and George went to Tuscany with Olivia to recuperate. But two months later in July, he was getting treatment in Switzerland for a brain tumor. Mm. Ironically, George, or Ringo visited George in Switzerland, but had to cut the visit short because his own daughter was having emergency brain surgery in Boston at the same time. Yup. But it was already too late. Despite undergoing more radiotherapy, the cancer had spread to George's brain. On November 12th, 2001, a very frail George met with Ringo and Paul at a hotel in New York City. He knew he wasn't going to be around much longer and mm. wanted to see them before he left the mortal world. Mm. Paul spent the whole day with George and his family. And 17 days later, on November 29th, 2001, George passed away at Paul's house in Los Angeles from metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Mm. He was only 58 years old. Ugh. Per his wishes, his ashes were scattered in the Ganges River in a Hindu ceremony. Knowing he wouldn't be able to finish it before he died, he left instructions instructions to Donnie and Jeff Lynn on how to finish his final album. Like, very detailed instructions. Wow. He'd been working on it since 1988, but because of traveling Wilburys and other commitments, he kept putting it off. Oh my gosh. Finally, almost exactly a year after he died... George's final studio album was released. Brainwashed was met with critical acclaim, ensuring George's legacy would continue even if his, if his spirit was no longer on this plane. Mm. And that's it. It, oh. it never ceases to amaze me how influential George was. Seriously. He wasn't the greatest guitar player, honestly. And oh, he, I think he's pretty great. But he he wasn't shredding people's faces off every night. <laughs> no, that's that, that's not George's style either. No, not at all. But he wrote some of the most iconic and instantly recognizable guitar parts in music history. Mm-hmm. He was just as difficult and a pain in the ass as the rest of the Beatles were. Yep. Let's be honest. Yep. But the extra effort he put into getting his voice heard made sure we're still talking about him today. Yeah. And it definitely... Uh, solidified my view that George is my favorite Beatle. Oh, George is a great Beatle. I think George just made his way to my number two. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Paul and John can fuck off. George yeah. is my number one. Ringo's definitely my number two. Yeah. It used to be Ringo and Paul. Mm. It's probably Ringo <laughs> and George. You want to why? Because Ringo and George being, being best, best friends together forever. The fun never ends. Seriously, though. I need more, like, adorable fan art of Ringo and George just being best friends. Yeah. 
Because out of like the all four Beatles, like Ringo and George Royce, the two are like, well, we don't fucking hate each other, right? Right, we don't hate yeah, each cause other. Yeah, because they were in the same boat in the Beatles, right. pretty much. Like the only difference between Ringo and George is that Ringo really didn't have the same creative needs that George did. Yeah. Which like is no knock on George by any means. It's just like George had needs that weren't George being was met. a songwriter and, and he wanted his songwriting voice heard. Yeah. And he wasn't getting that in the Beatles. Exactly. There was no room for that. And something to have you kids research after we're done here is you should definitely look up the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame While My Guitar Gently Weeps George Tribute. Mm-hmm. I made you watch that last week. Boner. Did you? Jams. Yeah. Oh, with Prince. <gasps> Prince. Oh, that was so good. Prince does the guitar for it at the end. Holy fuck. Basement flooded. Like... And it's great. And Danny's up there and mm-hmm. he's playing and it's Tom Petty. Oh, my God. There's a lot of dead people up there. <laughs> Jeff Lynn. He's not oh, dead no. yet. Um, yeah, no. It's It was just filled with the traveling Woolberries who was left and Danny and um, Prince. And it's so good. If you yeah. have never seen that performance, like, just sit down, give yourself six minutes and watch it. It is a fucking maze balls, and I think it's probably one of the few proper tributes to George. Yeah, I actually remember when George died because we were in I high school. I do not remember when George died, and at I was all. just getting into the Beatles. So mm-hmm. I had a, a friend, Joanne from England, and she, her parents would watch Beatles Yellow Submarine because I remember when we were in high school, like they re-released it, and so mm-hmm. her parents were watching a bunch. Like this is kind of fun, and like the music's really good. Mm-hmm. I got into Eleanor Rigby, so starting again in the Beatles. And one of my girlfriends, Erin, at school was super into the Beatles, and George was her favorite. Aww. And when George died, like, she was just a mess. Oh. Yeah. Like, it was just like when, like, Bowie died for us, you know? Yeah. It's just like she was crying at school. Like, God, I was a sophomore, I think, in high school, sophomore or junior. And yeah, George had died, and she's like, George died. I'm like, what do you mean, George died? Like, yeah, like her, she explained to me like about the cancer and everything. Like, oh my God, she was a wreck. I remember that. Yeah. I still have vivid memories of him dying. I was looking through my collection of albums from like my parents that they have given to me. And I have a lot more Beatles albums than I thought I did. And I have like a pretty decent stack of Beatles singles on vinyl. Oh, shit. Um. And I also have the uh, Hey Jude and Revolution one, but it's fucking cracked, like horribly cracked. No. But I was looking at all the albums I have that my mother and my aunt owned. And my aunt had written on the, um, what is it? It's not It's the Beatles. The black and white one. It's not Meet the Beatles. Isn't it Meet the Beatles? It might be Meet the Beatles. It's either Meet the Beatles or It's the Beatles. I think it's different um, between the UK and the US. Is. But it was that one with their black and white picture. Yeah, yeah. And she had written all over it. She had <laughs> written their names on it, but she had written Donna plus George Harrison. And I'm like, oh, my Aunt Donna like George too. Aunt Donna. <laughs> we knew you were good, peeps. Yeah, so. She gets it. But yeah. Man, yeah, George lived a pretty amazing life. He did. He had a whole lot of ups and downs. He, he did. had a whole lot of existential religious crisis mm-hmm. moments. Um, but I think he figured it out, and I think wherever he is now, he should be happy if he yeah. hasn't been reincarnated already. 
Well, you know, maybe he reincarnated to a bird in paradise. Yeah. Still trying to make that work. It's fine. Trying. I am. But yeah, I'm sure. I don't believe in reincarnation, but I think at least he left a great legacy. And, you know, that's half. Really, you live on through the memories of people who knew you. Maybe we as fans don't know him, but his legacy will live on in his music. And honestly, truly one of the greatest musicians that has ever lived in the Beatles and his solo work, because All Things Must Pass is one of the absolute best albums that has ever been made. It is a tight butthole of an album. Oh, definitely. Oh, so good. The tightest butthole. I was listening to it and I was like, oh, Ashley's right. This is an amazing album. Absolutely. Every single song is amazing. Yeah. And that'll conclude it for George and the Beatles that we don't have complicated so feelings of. I don't want to leave George. I've spent so much time with him the last I know. Two weeks. I know. Like, George and Ringo were like, and like, it's like where we've like, oh, bye, guys. We just had like a bye. lovely afternoon tea. Yeah. And now we have to go. But now I have to go hang out with John and I don't want to. Yeah, I've been hanging out with Paul and it's been a real. It's been a slog with Paul. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome to the slog with Paul McCartney. <laughs> Oh, God. Welcome to Rock Candy, where we're going to have really complicated feelings for the next month. Yep. We sure are. Yeah. It's going to be tough. It's going to be weird. Hey. And I think it's going to be... A- hey, whose idea was this? It was my jackass <laughs> idea. You can 100% blame me. I am kicking myself every day. <sighs> it's a lot. But hopefully you guys are enjoying it. And even if you're not, thanks I'm, for listening to us. I like that I'm getting <laughs> to know the Beatles. And I like that I'm reinforcing my love of George. That's you know it. what? We feel confident in our number ones. We Ringo do. and George. Like, I didn't really know a lot about the Beatles before. Now I know a lot about the Beatles. And I'm confident in my choice. I've always known little tiddly bits, right? Like, I would yeah. know, like, the little nuggets of stories. Yeah. But now I feel like I'm learning so much more. And I can't wait to our final word on all this. The final word. We're going to have to have a final word because this is a lot. Yeah. Maybe that can be our little bonus episode. Yeah. A little 20-minute bonus of us just bitching about the Beatles. Yeah. Woof. And then we'll never talk about them again. It's fine. Yep. Anyway, thank you guys so much for listening. Yes, thank you. We appreciate you and love you. <laughs> and if you're digging what we have, you can go visit our website, rockcandypodcast.com. Check out more episodes and find our social needs. Uh, we got the Instagrams and the Facebook and the Twitters and the Smitgrams. Smitgrams? Smitstagrams. Smitstagrams. <laughs> we don't have that. That's not real yet. Also, we have a new merch store. We do. It's um, no longer tea. We found out Spring. that Teespring is not the best. They're pretty garbage. Um, They definitely allowed some like crazy white supremacist bullshit to be on their website they knew about it and did not take it down so we are no longer affiliated just so in case any white supremacists are listening we're not okay with you yeah uh yeah we moved get the fuck out we moved to t public we updated all our links um you can find it on our website um or just go to t public and look for rock candy podcast right now we just have some general logo merch but we're actually working on a couple other designs the great thing about some cutesy shit and the great thing about t public is that they have a lot more items you can choose from um and also they are cheaper and they run sales which is also always what i look for right and i mean i've gotten a couple shirts off t public and what i love is like jeremy got me the um natasha and laszlo shirt from Mm -hmm. t public and i was like this ain't gonna fit me i put it on 
totally fits me. It's nice. a large. And I'm like, larges don't fit me. So their sizes are pretty great. And I think nice. that the material they use is very nice as they well. They also have a much bigger selection of sizes. I think they go up to like 5X. Yeah. And they also just have different types of shirts, which is yes. really nice. Like you can get a, a ringer, which I fucking love a ringer. And I love a three-quarter baseball tee. So yep. you can get that shit. You can get the hoodie, zipper on. And yeah, they have some really good shit. So yeah. Um, and also, if you've bought shit, because we noticed people have already bought stuff off of Tia Public, which thank you so much. Let us know how it is. Let us know how it is and actually post pictures. This time, we fucking mean it. <laughs> we will post pictures. We are going to post pictures <laughs> and we're going to just show everybody what everything fits like. We're going to buy some stuff ourselves and show off everything. So, yeah. yeah. It'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. Also, if you want to give us some monies, you can go to our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash rockcandypodcast. You give us money. We give you stuff in exchange, including a monthly bonus episode. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll talk about the death of Phil Spector on this month. Oh, yeah. It's a lot to unpack there. We're going to have we're gonna have a lot to unpack. And actually, I was thinking about like maybe a couple, one or two bonus bonus episodes for patrons as well. Mm. So... You know, stay tuned. If you want to give us your monies, you'll get some bonus shit. If you don't, that's fine. You're still going to get this regular bullshit, too. Yeah. So, you know, come get on. Get all the, the bullshit. Ride. Get all the bullshit here at Rock Candy Podcast. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> anyway, come on in next week for, um... Paul? For, for Paul McFucking Cartney. Paul McFucking Cartney. <laughs> it's going to be a wild ride. We're still going mm. through it. So we'll see you next week. And until then, party on, Ashley. Party on, Maggie. Party on, <laughs> you crazy kids out there. <sighs> I got my mind set on you. I got my mind set on you. But it's going to take money. A whole lot of spending money. Give me your money. <laughs>